Well, would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians? <laughs> was there guesses? What, what was it? Oh, threw you a curveball, Georgia. Acts was a bridge between uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and what I'm hoping the Lord just stirs us in in the book of Galatians. We're going to begin a study today uh, through the book of Galatians. And I'm um, entitled this series, No Other Gospel, and you're going to see why um, in a moment. But I just wanted to preface this by saying that as an eldership team or um, as those when we, when we prepare for where God would lead us, uh, one of the questions that we're constantly asking, whether it's a teaching series or whether it's any other type of endeavor that we're giving ourselves to as a faith community, the question as a leader that I always ask is, what is God saying to us now? And, or in other words, what is God wanting to grow us and mature us in for the mission that he's called us to today? And so as I've just have processed um, the time of fasting together, which let me just say, I, I think that coming out of the fast, um, some of you might have been expecting perhaps that we spend an extended period of time of just dialoguing and discussing, but honestly, I intentionally didn't make a big to-do about our time of fasting in terms of it culminating. Other than being here together, worshiping the Lord in faith, um, breaking it together at the Lord's table. But the reason for that is because fasting is a, is a, is a New Testament rhythm that happens on the regular. And I think as, in terms of Western Christianity or perhaps just modern-day Christianity, it's, it's not a rhythm that we see very often and so just by way of somewhat normalizing it, I, I didn't want to make more out of it perhaps than I thought needed to be. But let me just say this. I want to take just a brief minute, and I just know because we're, it's been wonderful so far, but I know I'm going to be limited on time. Um, but I want to take a moment and just kind of synthesize as the lead elder of this church what I believe the Lord was speaking to us coming out of it. There was, um, let me say, there was a couple of words. There was actually a handful of prophetic words that were given to individuals both before and during. And uh, as a leadership team, we gathered and just processed those together. And I think there's two really significant or um, primary themes that were bubbling to the surface, if you will, during our time of fasting. And the first was um, a, well, let me, sorry, let me say this before I say that. Um, we set out to fast with the intent in our hearts to focus on asking the Lord to really give clarity as to a permanent location for this church. And with that, we were also asking the Lord to provide for our very basic needs of a building, a facility that would be ours, um, and perhaps even that He would allow us to own. So we set out with that emphasis, and as we did, it became very apparent that the Lord had somewhat of a different agenda. And I'll say the two things that came to the surface was first and foremost the proclamation of the gospel as, as the mission of the church to the unbelieving and to those that are in darkness, um, the, the laborers in the field for the harvest, and just a reminder, amazingly as that sounds, that we need to be reminded of what the purpose of the church is in that regard. And that really became clear, and we gathered on Friday night, the first night of the fast in different homes, and that theme was coming up independent from one another in the various homes as we prayed together. The second thing that I believe that the Lord 
was speaking to us very clearly was the simple message of Jesus Christ at the center of everything that we do. That he is our aim, that he is our emphasis. And now that might also sound very like, well, what else is there? But church, when we stop sometimes and we consider all the things that the church collectively does, oftentimes we'll find that Christ is not at the center of those things. And so there was a very, just a clear call, specifically in one of the words that was given prior to us engaging in the fast that I communicated with us as a church as to the emphasis of our fast or that helped lead us into it. And that was the, the, the picture of the bonfire and Christ was at the center of that bonfire. And that our responsibility is to stoke that fire lest it diminish and or go out. And what followed that was the word that do this and he will care for the rest and he'll take care of the rest. And what that rest is, we can only assume is everything else that we need and all the other things that we were praying for. So I just want you guys to know that as a leader, I was very encouraged and I felt the time of fasting was, was very good. It was healthy for us. I was blessed by the many of you who've never fasted before that participated fully. Um, it, was, it was just a real joy as a leader. And so um, let's continue, though, just to process the things that we felt the Lord was speaking to us so that they take root that which is of Him. So on the heels of that fast and in light of asking, Lord, what is it that you want to speak to us now that focus of Christ at the center um, was really just strong in my heart. And then, and then adding to that as well, that emphasis of, of the outward focus of the gospel. And so those two emphases of the, of the gospel going forward, and as Jesus Christ at the center of his church, it seemed right for us to spend some time grounding ourselves in the joy, in the beauty, in the simplicity, and in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then simultaneously, though, my hope is, as we do that, that we, brothers and sisters, are so gripped by the reality and the truthfulness that we would find in ourselves an increase of faith and expectation and desire and perhaps even necessity to proclaim and to declare the gospel message as his church. And so both of those themes I, I, I think we'll find as we get into the book of Galatians that they're going to be present for us over these next few weeks. And so I'll, as I said, I'm going to begin this new series today and I'm calling it No Other Gospel. And many consider uh, Galatians to be Paul's very first letter, a letter that he wrote It's somewhat a seminal work as it pertains to the foundational elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to look this morning at chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 1 through 10, and that's what we're going to focus on together today. So let's take a look at Galatians. I'm reading from the ESV. If you have a different a translation and it's too difficult to follow, you can follow along on the monitors. It'll be queued up as I read along. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, of which we are incredibly grateful and humbled to receive. Verse one, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So as we read this opening portion of his letter to these churches, it's obvious that there is something urgent that's fueling Paul's efforts in his writing. And it's this, that there is a reminder that Paul is wanting to give to the churches in Galatia of what the true gospel really is. And we see that it's greatly needed because as we have read, there are some within the church who have already deserted and are in fact deserting Christ and are turning to a different gospel altogether. And the cause of this, he says, is found in verse 7, that there are some from outside who are throwing you into confusion, the NIV says. Throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so the pressing issue for Paul is that believing Christ followers are being influenced to believe and to follow a gospel that is not really the gospel at all. And so for the Galatian churches, the message of religious zealots, there are individuals called Judaizers that are, that are those who would want to teach a combination of both grace and human effort in conforming to the Mosaic law. That those are those who are from the outside that are coming into the churches within Galatia and are perverting the gospel. And they're introducing this message of, of works and of grace. And they've crept in like wolves into a herd of sheep. And for the Judaizers, their message was that a Gentile could only receive salvation if they first converted to Judaism, which we'll see a theme throughout at least the opening portion and towards the end as well is the issue of circumcision. Well, for, the, for those who conform to the Mosaic law, circumcision was the outward sign of an inward conformity and profession of belief. And so there's this pressure from them from this outside group into the churches of Galatia to add to, if you will, to distort the true gospel by adding to that which is not really of Christ. And so this is where I believe this in lies the answer to the question of what is God saying to his church today. I believe that God is saying to his church that there is a great need and an urgent need, church, to know deeply and to know clearly what is the true message of Christ in order that we would recognize and combat the counterfeit, that which is not of Christ Jesus. There's a quote by Martin Luther that I read this week, and he says this, There's, There is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the doctrine of faith and may substitute for it the doctrines of works, 
and of human traditions. It is very necessary, therefore, that this doctrine of faith be continually read and heard in public. In other words, church, what he's saying is that there's a battleground in the hearts and minds of believing men and women where war is being waged against the purity and truthfulness of the true gospel message. And that's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing battle. Our hearts and our minds are the battleground by which war is being waged and the purity of the gospel is at stake. And so if this is true, which I believe that we would all agree with that, at least that basic premise, if this is true then, like the Galatians, we too are combating false and counterfeit gospels of our day. So the issue that the Galatians were faced with in that moment is not a unique matter in terms of redemptive history. It's an ongoing issue. Today, brothers and sisters, there are gospels that are being propagated as being true that are in fact counterfeit, that are false, that are not the real and true gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is where I believe Galatians is going to be so helpful for us because I think that it's going to arm us and equip us. It's like if you are endeavoring to enhance your physical fitness, it's not just an issue of denying yourself certain things. You deny yourself, but also it's what you supplement and what you ingest that builds you up. And so what I'm hoping for us as a church is that by taking in what is the true gospel, what is the real gospel of Jesus Christ, that in so doing we're expelling the impurities from our own hearts and minds and we're combating and we're able to recognize, wait a minute, that's an error. That's not right. And, then, and I'll say this more in just a moment, but, but church, the, it's, it's not always just a very black and white issue. It's insidious. It's nuanced. That's what counterfeit is, right? It appears to be the original when, in fact, it's just slightly off or slightly different, making it untrue. And so I'd say this, that the counterfeit gospels that are the most dangerous to God's people are often not the most, or most obvious ones. And this is what Paul is saying in verse 7, that the false gospel is a distortion of the genuine. Think about it. The, the false gospel of material blessing, that's an easy one for us to spot, right? And there's probably others. I was thinking like the ecumenical movement, if you've heard of that before, that, that word. Is, it's basically just kind of the hands across the divide of religions and the, and the clear cultural call for all religions to be joined in unity and harmony and to promote peace. That's that, what the ecumenical movement is. Those are obvious to us. Those aren't the true gospel because Christ Jesus proclaimed He is the only way unto the Father, right? So we can see those coming like a lame duck from a mile away, flapping its wings, but the dangerous counterfeits are those that appear to be genuinely rooted in truth and yet distort or tweak the, the authentic message of Jesus Christ. And just as a, as a reminder, this is the secret. We often see them in their origins within culture itself. 
When something creeps into the church and it has an origin within culture or a beginning within culture or it comes from a voice within culture, that's a clear indicator that it's probably not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So what I was wanting to do this morning, and I don't plan on unpacking them, I want to just give three counterfeit gospels for our present day, like the Judaizers of that moment, that I believe that the church faces and combats, at least within Western Christendom. And I'm not going to take the time I'm just going to summarize each one of them, and, I'm going to, and, and we'll have time as we go through the book of Galatians to address and unpack them probably more and more, but I want to just present them this morning so that we can have a context for this, this light and dark, if you will, this true and untrue, and there are ones that I believe are present. I believe that they're insidious. I believe that they're dangerous. I believe that, that they are... They are um, oftentimes seen within the church itself today. And so in identifying them, I'm hoping that what we can do is be aware within our own hearts and, and prop ourselves up in what is true and pull back the covers, if you will, on the enemy's scheme. So the first one is this. I'm just going to give you three, and like I said, I'm going to give you the summary. The first is the activist gospel, and I'm going to use some titles, and I'll just say I didn't take these titles, and I'm I borrowed them from a Gospel Coalition article, so this is not plagiarism if you watch this on YouTube. The first is, is the activist gospel, and the activist gospel, this is one that we're probably more aware of now than we were a few years ago, but it also has become much more insidious church and divisive within the church itself, and I would say it's become much more difficult to eradicate because of its great new nuance. And I would also say this, that a subcategory of this activist gospel would be the woke gospel. That's a portion of it as well, or it's found within it. So the activist gospel says this, that the kingdom of God is advanced through efforts to build a just society. The gospel's power is demonstrated through cultural transformation, and the church is united around political causes and social projects. Have you guys heard of anything that might resemble that before? At the core of it, the ideals are equality of outcome, equality of outcome, equity and opportunity and chance, and just kind of brass tacks. Really what it is, it's the elevation of the created to a place where only the creator rightfully sits. And so to reject this gospel, to combat this gospel, is to be perceived as those who would reject justice, as those who reject peace, as those who reject restitution for the oppressed and for the marginalized, whether it's persons or any other created thing. It's not just an issue of cultural divides or racial divides. It goes much beyond that as well, we find within culture today. This is just kind of packing all those things into one you know, summary statement. So this is one that I believe that the church faces. The second is the therapeutic gospel. The therapeutic gospel says that sin, you want to throw that up there? Thanks. Sin robs us of our sense of fullness and contentment. Christ's death proves our worth as humans and gives us power to reach our potential. 
The church helps us find happiness and personal fulfillment. This is the therapeutic gospel. At the core of this gospel, its ideals are driven by individualism and a man-centeredness rather than a Christ-centeredness. And it asks the question, what can I gain? Or what can God do for me? And then the third is the moralist gospel. The activist gospel, the therapeutic gospel, and the moralist gospel. And listen, there are others. We know there are others. I just was trying to identify a few for us to kind of latch on to this morning that I believe we are combating that are a real issue. The moralist gospel says this, our big problem is sins, plural, and not sin as it pertains to human nature. The purpose for Christ's death is to give us a second chance and make us better people. Redemption comes through the exercise of willpower with God's help. And so at the core of this is human effort-based righteousness, works-based righteousness. We achieve righteousness through that which we do in in rightfulness to God. It says this, what matters most to God is that I endeavor to be the best possible version of me. Or if something something along the lines of, if the trajectory of my life, by and large, is living as good as I can and living as honorably as I can, how could a loving God then not be pleased with that? I mean, we hear that all the time. And let me just say this, church, regardless... This is a, these are black and white statements, right, what I'm, what I'm giving you in these summaries this morning. But there's a spectrum to these things. We find them in varying degrees. And can I just say, I'll say honestly before you, church, there are times that I fall in. This, I believe that this one in particular is incredibly pervasive within the church. And there are times in my own heart where I find that I have stepped away from grace, which Paul is going to talk about, and I find myself endeavoring to please God by the things that I do, or thinking in my own heart that, gosh, I know that, I know that this is right, and I know that I should do this, but I'm not doing it. And if I could just do it more, or do it in this such a way, that I know that God is going to be happy with me, And I know that God will respond to me the way that I want him to respond. Do you hear that slight nuance in that church? Those are honest thoughts that we think. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we probably have thought that way and from a moment to the next. So the reason that I want to point them out, it's important for us to recognize what they are, but then take a moment in your own heart, church, and, and be honest with yourself. Which of these, perhaps, are more common in your thinking? Or which of these have you tended towards, if any at all? And recognize that there's degrees of the counterfeit that appear within our hearts and our lives from time to time. And so what I wanted to do, then just presenting those, and hang on to those and consider those. And as I said, we'll have time and later within this study to unpack some of these things that we're combating today. But what I want to do this morning is I want to just give the balance of what is true because I love what Paul does here. In verses one through five, Paul, obviously he's very urgent in 
in what he is needing and wanting to say to the churches in Galatia. But I love how he begins within his greeting with a beautiful perspective and representation of what the true gospel actually is. Before he gets into any type of correction, Paul lays out in verses 1 through 5, this is what the gospel actually is. And I want to steep our hearts in that this morning, church, and build this up and start to exercise this muscle of faith and understanding so, again, that we're able to see and to perceive and to combat these heresies and these lies. And so let me begin by asking us a question. How do we fend off the dilution in our hearts? How how do we rid ourselves of believing what is false? We take in what is true. We build up and strengthen in our minds an understanding and a knowledge of what is true based off of what God has revealed to us by his written word. And so this is what Paul does. And he's going to speak of four things that I want to present in just my template for the true gospel. In verses 1 through 5, Paul's going to speak of the origins of the gospel. He's going to speak of the purpose of the gospel, the effect of the gospel, and the end goal of the gospel. And he begins in verse 1 in speaking of the gospel's origin. And he says that salvation is accomplished He says that it comes through Christ Jesus and by God the Father in verse 1. But then look what he says in verse 4. Paul says that it was according to the will of the Father that Jesus would be given over to death. In Acts chapter 3, verse 23, Peter before those declares that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Church, the origins of the gospel is that it was always in God's heart to deliver his son unto death on the cross. It was always God's design. The lamb given before the foundations of the world, as it says in Revelation. Church, God doesn't love because Jesus died. Jesus died because God loved. Do you hear the difference in that statement? It wasn't earned by Christ's death. It was because of God's love that Christ died, that he gave Jesus for us. In 2 Timothy, verse 1, Paul says this to Timothy, that God saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is foundational to the gospel. It speaks directly to the lies of each counterfeit that I mentioned. It begins with God's view of his creation and his deep love and yearning and desire to redeem it back from sin's enslavement, which was a result of the son's deep love for the father, which he gave himself willingly. God loved, and so he gave Christ Jesus. It was his plan from the beginning of time to be such. 
and the Son, as I just said, joyfully. We can read into Paul's words here, where he says in verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself. He willingly and joyfully gave himself for our sins. Secondly, I'm going to try to move quickly just for the sake of time, but I, I think I can do it without it being too rushed. Let me just say this. The second was the gospel's purpose. So the first was the origin of the gospel. The second is the purpose of the gospel. So directly following that statement in verse 4, Paul speaks of the purpose of the gospel message. And he says this, Christ Jesus willingly gave himself for our sin. There's a missing four in there. Who gave himself our sins? That's not true. Well, actually, he took our sins upon himself. So in some sense, he did. But there's an important four that's missing in that statement. Jesus Christ willingly gave himself for our sins. We should have died as a penalty for the sins which we lived in. And what, what, is, what does Paul say elsewhere? But God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy. He gave up his son Jesus as a replacement for you and I. In place of Christ died for us. There was a great exchange or a transaction that took place that day. Christ died in our place and took upon himself the weight and the punishment for sin, becoming sin, as Paul says, so that we could be, through his perfect righteousness, the righteousness of God. Does that make sense? There was a transactional, this is the mystery and the joy and the beauty of the Christian life. The substitutionary aspect and nature of Christ on our behalf. Where I should have gone, Christ went instead. Why? Because it was the will of the Father from the beginning before all time. Jesus Christ was given, Paul says, as the propitiation for our sins, the atonement for our sins, appeasing the righteous wrath that God had because of man's sinfulness. Christ Jesus took our place in that regard. Not just for us, it says, but the word of God tells us, but also for the sins of the world. And therefore, by faith we are saved, which is not our own doing, but it's a wondrous gift of God for us. This is the gift of grace. You guys might remember, it's been months now, so, so you might not recall, but I read a good portion of Calvin's Institute of the Christian Religion as it pertains to the Lord's table. Do you guys remember that? I was thinking about the substitutionary nature of Christ's work and how he died in our place and how he took upon himself what was rightfully mine. He took it to himself. And I was reminded of what Calvin said, and I wanted to just read it to you again because it's so beautiful. Calvin says this when he's talking about the Lord's table. He says that great indeed is the fruit of sweetness and comfort our souls can gather from this sacrament. Because we recognize, listen to this, Christ, we recognize Christ to have been so engrafted in us as we, in turn, have been engrafted in him. Is that right? Is it all wrong up there too? Oh, good, okay. <laughs> Here's the truth. You know, on like Max. You can speak to talk. So sometimes when I want to like put something, I'll just say it, and then it's all messed up. 
So I was, just, I was reading it from here, and I did it here, and it's all messed up here. I'm glad I fixed it there. Let me just step back for momentum. Great indeed is the fruit of sweetness and comfort our souls can gather from this sacrament because we recognize Christ to have been so engrafted in us as we, in turn, have been engrafted in Him. So that whatever is His, we are permitted to call ours. And whatever is ours, we reckon as His. We cannot be condemned for our sins any more than He, because they are not now ours, but His. This is the purpose of the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is what I'm speaking about, the transactional moment where Christ went in our place. And now this is the benefit as those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus live within. The origin was the Father's love, shown through Christ's willful obedience for the purpose of our sin, which we stood in before a righteous, before a just, and before a holy God. And so thirdly, though, it tells us now of the effects of the gospel. And Paul says so that the effect was that we would be delivered from this present evil age. And herein lies the great effect that Christ died to deliver us from the present evil age. The gospel is a great rescue story, church, whereby Christ in his perfect and sinless humanity went to where no other man could go thereby freeing us from our enslavement, freeing us from captivity, freeing the world from bondage to sin and death. The gospel is a story of redemption, whereby the future age, the age to come, the age that we hope for, the eternal age that has not yet fully come, pierced this present age through Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel speaks of. And now, by faith, we live a ransomed life. We live a free life. And Paul has a ton to say about that, which we'll get to in a few weeks ahead. I was thinking about this as well. This ransoming happened not just for us as humans, but for all of creation. All of creation will one day be made new, not just humanity. Christ's, the effect of Christ's ransom was total and utter throughout all of creation. That's amazing when we think about that. And so now, brothers and sisters, we live tasting of the future age in the present as ransomed, as the effects of the gospel being delivered from the present age, we have a foretaste of the future age to come. Free from sin, free from the bondage of sin. Does it mean that we won't sin? Is it possible for us to not sin? No. Why? Because even though we are ransomed, the kingdom of God has not fully come yet. And so we still live in this in between, in the flesh, in our human bodies, in our sinful nature, but yet our spirits are made new. Our souls are made alive to Christ Jesus. Our minds are being regenerated. Our thinking, 
Our hearts have been made new. It's in part, and it will one day be in total, right? And we look to that day, but we can live now with the effect of the gospel, understanding that Christ has delivered us from the present evil age, that we have been set free through the power of Christ Jesus. And that speaks of the gospel's effect. And then finally, to the gospel's end, Paul says this, it is to God the Father, he says, be glory forever and ever. And then he says, amen, at the end of verse five. The gospel's end, church, is to the glory of God the Father. That's the aim of it. That's the trajectory of it. That's the purpose of its revelation in our hearts that would be unto the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It comes back to what I was saying in the beginning. The church confesses and proclaims the excellency of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ, the greater degree of Christ's message and Christ's saving work is all exemplified and embodied and spoken of and sung about and furthered through the way that we live our lives all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the end of the gospel, brothers and sisters under the glory of the Lord. And can I just point out this to us? In each of those things, in its origin, in its purpose, in its effect, and in its end, there is not a single utterance of a word or any solitary thing that we did or that we could have done. Did you notice that? This is why the gospel is a gift. What is a gift? receiving something that was unmerited perhaps, unwarranted, something given to you that you didn't purchase or earn, but is given from what? An individual who cares, who wants to show love, who wants to show worth and value to you as an individual. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's simple, church. It's pure. It's one-sided, it's total, it's complete, it's glorious. Is it not? So I would say this, the gospel is not about what we have done for God. The gospel is about what God has done for us, plain and simple. And so in each of those counterfeits that I mentioned, we can see man's efforts, man's origin, man's effect. Now listen, in our longingness for what is true, I believe that in, in humanity, Christ has embedded within us an inherent sense of righteousness or desire for justice and peace. So I'm not saying that in, as an aim that those are necessarily all of them are wrong, particularly the first. It pursues to elevate those, and there's much that the church needs to say into those situations. But my point was just to say that the way it's being promoted as being that which the church ought to take up for itself by being that which is God's ultimate purpose is false and is wrong. Do you understand the, delineate, the differentiation between the two? The gospel is what God has done for us, church. 
There's a saying that we used to have here, or we've said it over the years, and I don't know where it came from, but I, I grew up hearing it at least most of my early years as a, as a believer, and it was this, that we desire the gospel plus nothing and the gospel minus nothing. Where did that saying come from? Heaven. It came from heaven. Divine revelation. Brothers and sisters, it's the gospel plus nothing and it's the gospel minus nothing. We want the fullness of the gospel and nothing more than what Christ has intended for us. I hope this was helpful in my hurriedness this morning, but I hope it was clarifying as well. Church, it's a beautiful mystery that God has chosen to reveal through Christ Jesus, the glorious message of His gospel of grace. And now it's ours to declare it, to live it, to embody it, to pursue it, to understand it, to speak of it, to confess it and proclaim it, to stand for it, right, to steward it. It's all of those things for us, church, but it's the best.